Proverbs chapter 11 is where we pick back up in our study here together, looking now at these specific, uh, short, and uh, somewhat clever statements of wisdom that God has given to us. Many of them are in very memorable statements, and I think they're purposeful, whether they're comparisons or whether they're contrasts. They're intended to be statements that we can not only glean an insight from, but I believe really kind of just hang on to, maybe that they're memorable, that they stick with us, and it can kind of be assisting us as we navigate our journey day by day and week by week to just have these little nuggets of God's wisdom to feed upon in our decisions and the way we live out our lives. Proverbs chapter 11 verse 1 jumps in by saying to us here a practical concept regarding really our business dealings. He says to us here, Proverbs 11, 1, dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So what he pictures here in verse 1 is really doing business with, we might say, balanced scales. And in that day, as they would do business using the the balanced scales, if you remember from a long time ago, maybe back in science class, if you were still doing that without digital scales back then, you'd have kind of the little pan on each side and you would put things on one side and put things on the other side and kind of let them weigh themselves out. Well, that was the type of scales that were used for doing business in the marketplace in the ancient culture. And what God is speaking about here is using sincere or honest weights for the pricing of merchandise or products. And so as he talks here about not using dishonest scales, really he's in fact referring to uh, really instructions that were actually given in the law itself. In fact, just to kind of acquaint you with what the the writer of Proverbs is building upon here in Leviticus chapter 19, uh, we see reference to this. I'll I'll read it to you. This is Leviticus 19 verse uh, 35 and 36. We read there, you shall not do injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, in weight or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hin, for I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So uh, God gave specific instruction to the people of God, the congregation of Israel, that as they would conduct their business in the merchant place, in the marketplace, excuse me, and as the merchants would sell things and the customers would come and buy things, and sometimes it was even a a bartering system where they would exchange product for product, but uh, he speaks about the idea here of having honest weights and honest measurements. And what he's referring to, of course, is that there wouldn't be this fraudulent activity where, for example... If you were purchasing a particular thing, uh, perhaps if you were you know, in the purchase process and you were trying to buy product, you might have one type of weight that you would use. And then when you were selling product, you might have a completely different one pound weight that you would use to try and just get a little bit more or a little bit less, depending upon if you were purchasing product or if you were selling product, to try and tip the scale one way or the other to kind of take advantage of what your customer thought was a pound was really perhaps less than a pound if you were selling something, and so you were making more profit and giving away less product, 
where on the other end, maybe then if you were the one who was the purchasing individual, you would use a weight that may have said one pound, but it was way heavier than one pound. Maybe it was a pound and a half or two pounds so that you would get way more product than really a pound's worth and that you would actually be able to, again, take advantage of someone in a business transaction. And of course, it was just, it was just unethical business. It was just dishonesty. It was a way to cheat uh, and to lie. And he says here in our verses, it's wise to know that this kind of dishonest business practice of cheating an individual, lying in your business dealings, however it may happening, he says to understand that such a thing is an abomination to the Lord. Now, that's a strong word. We don't see the word abomination a whole lot in the word of God. From time to time, it does show up, but it seems God kind of reserves that strong term abomination, which is a term that speaks of strong disgust or just thoroughly despising something with strong hatred. And so he says here, the Lord is disgusted and he hates those who deal crookedly in business endeavors, lying, cheating, falsifying activity and business practices, taking advantage of individuals. But he says in contrast to that, because he knows it's perhaps a temptation for all of us in different ways as we do business dealings, whether we're just doing a one-on-one transaction with a person or maybe we're operating in business or we're kind of trying to you know, haggle out a deal in regards to something. He says, in contrast, a just weight is God's delight. In other words, God is greatly pleased when we are honest and completely forthright in conducting business, that there's no shady activity, there's no hiding information, that there's just a complete, honest, transparent interaction, fairness, right treatment used in business transactions. And he says that when that is going on and a person is willing to deny any selfish behavior or any sense of greed that may arise with them or anything that may kind of prompt them to kind of take advantage of somebody in the midst of a business dealing, he says God is so pleased, he delights to say, thank you for being honest. Thank you for not cheating in that situation. Thank you for just being transparent and being fair and righteous in your dealings. And he says that brings God great pleasure. So again, important to realize it is foolish to do business dealings that are shady and dishonest and and because it's foolish because though we may get away with it on the human level, uh, we're greatly displeasing the divine supervisor, and and, and we're not putting ourselves in good standing with him. And so it's foolish to ever do such things. And the same way, when we are being fair and transparent and honest, treating people right in our business transactions, what a wonderful thing. That greatly pleases the Lord. It greatly pleases the Lord. You know, we may think, well, we have to do this to please the Lord, that to please the Lord. When God sees us behaving properly in our business interactions, God says, thank you for pleasing me. That that makes me pleased that you are handling yourself in that way or the business is functioning in a way that's ethical and honest. Verse two, he says, when pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. So again, here's one of these repeated themes all throughout the book of Proverbs, the contrast of being proud and arrogant versus being humble and living in 
humility. And here he says that when pride comes, it brings about shame or disgrace. In other words, whenever we allow ourselves to become proud, whenever we behave in prideful ways, the end result, the word of God says, is always going to be disgrace. It's always going to end up in shame ultimately. Again, we're going to see in Proverbs chapter 16 where he says that pride comes before destruction, real strong word, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And repeatedly throughout the word of God and throughout the book of Proverbs, we see these negative connotations put upon the pride of a human heart because you know pride is just such a destructive thing we've talked about before, and I know I'm not saying something novel I haven't said before from the podium here, but I've said this before, but it is so true. Uh, pride is indeed like the mother of so many sins. I mean, it really is. If you take so many of the sinful things that we do as human beings, the, the, the mother of that, that which gives birth or conception to that particular sinful behavior so many times is pride because pride is just an elevated view of ourselves. It's basically thinking of ourselves way more high and important than we really should. So as I think more important of myself or more high of myself than I should, then I justify I can do this selfish thing or I can gratify this desire, or I can be mean to this person, or I can rebel against God in that way, or I can conduct. And so whatever it is, I mean, so many times you trace back the root of sin. It really is a pride issue in our own hearts. It's arrogance towards God in a sense, and it's, it's really pride towards other individuals around us. Think about what took down Satan. It was pride. The very first time sin really ever came into its existence the first sin, if you really want to boil it down, not of humanity, the first sin of humanity is the Garden of Eden. But the first sin, if you would, against God was Satan's rebellion against God, which was, at its root, pride. So it's not surprising then that when the pride of the enemy begins to manipulate our mind, it's thinking too high of ourselves, refusing God's authority and really becoming our own authority. He says here, look, whenever pride comes, just be aware. Don't be foolish, he says. Be wise. Don't be foolish about this. Whenever pride comes, he says, it's always going to lead to poor judgment and foolish, presumptuous behaviors, which are then going to always culminate in falling into traps and disgracing yourself in some way and just bringing shame into your own life and regret and pain. He says, in contrast, but the contrast with the humble is wisdom. So there is great wisdom in humility, the exact opposite. The wise person realizes keeping a low and a proper view of myself is one of the wisest things that I can do. To realize someone is always in authority and it's not me. There's God and then there's everything else. And God is supreme authority over everything and everyone. So therefore, I should always, to some degree, be walking in a degree of constant humility because I am nowhere near the level of God. I am always subservient to God's authority, and so I should always be humbling myself under God's authority. And as we keep living in humility, that causes us to have a proper view of self and to know our own limits, to understand that we have weaknesses as human beings and that we are limited people, that we are frail that we don't have everything together, that often we don't know what we're doing, and that we need God's help. And humility keeps us living in that honest, continual dependency upon God. 
That's what humility does. We realize, Lord, I am frail, as the Bible says, that, that we would remember, God does, that we remember that we're dust, that we're just weak, frail human beings and we have to depend upon God and that we're just real before God. We live in humility before him, doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly before God instead of living in resistance to God's authority and striving to keep up an image among people because we're never keeping an image before God because God knows the reality about us. But pride causes us to neglect humility by trying to keep up a public image, and yet that ends up causing great problems. And he says real wisdom is when people who are humble in spirit recognize their need for God and they live in that humility. Again, the New Testament tells us very similarly that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know, one man illustrated it like a, like a seesaw, you know, that when the one end is up, the other end is down. And so when we're in humility and we're down and we're at the bottom level, then God's up and all the grace of God can just come flowing downhill into our lives. And we need a lot of grace and a lot of help. But when we invert the seesaw and we put ourselves at the top and we make ourselves way more important and even more important than God, then things don't flow uphill very easily. So we rob ourselves of the grace of God and we really cause God to have to resist us. So living in human pride, that's going to result in breaking my pride and, and God letting me be disgraced to get my attention many a times, where in contrast, he says, living in humility is going to result in God graciously giving us understanding how to live well. And so he says, with the humble, indeed, there's, there's real wisdom when someone understands the value of being a humble person. Verse 3, he says, the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity, the crookedness, the twistedness, that's our Hebrew word there, the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. So notice, we can either have, verse 3 says, we can have clear judgment in making good decisions to live our lives wisely and well, or we can be misguided in the way that we think, in the way that we make decisions, which is going to lead to a self-destructive end where we, he says, destroy ourselves. And you notice the difference between having clear judgment and making good decisions or being misguided and self-destructing because we're making poor decisions and judgments is the condition of our heart. He says here in verse 3, the condition of our heart is going to determine the clarity in the steps that we take. Right there in verse 3, he tells us it's the integrity, that is the honesty, the sincerity. Integrity is a heart that is pure, someone who's genuine. They're just honest, and they're faithful, and they're real. And whether anyone's watching or not, they're the same always. And he says the person who has integrity in heart is going to be someone who's going to be able to have clear perspective for the right path because he says there someone who has integrity in their heart and is living upright that's going to guide them so as we just simply live with a right heart before the lord that gives us clarity of perspective and we're able to then see more clearly how to make good decisions and to stay on the right path our judgment is clear in contrast when our heart goes from being pure and having integrity to starting to become polluted and starting to become perverse in whatever ways, and our heart can be perverse in sexual aspects, but certainly in any way. We be perverse in the sense of being crooked and bent and distorted in other ways beyond sexual perversion. But he says when a heart becomes polluted, that unfortunately results 
in being willing to be someone who's then making compromises. And when you start making compromises, you start muddying the waters and you can't see real well through muddy water. When the water gets stirred up and murky and muddy, you just, you don't see as clearly and you lose your bearings and you start making bad decisions, which results in, he says, ultimately the perversity of the unfaithful is what destroys them. That is because they can't see clearly, they start making bad decisions and poor judgments, they lose perspective, and they err into a path of ruin and self-destruction. Verse 4, he says, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So notice, great statement here, verse 4, it gives us a concept really of wisdom that money is not able to solve every problem. And boy, how that does go into complete contradiction to the mindset of so many people, particularly in a, in a very affluent American culture, thinking in some way that money is the solution to every single problem. And here the Word of God says, as it says in numerous places, that is so wrong. And in fact, he says, that's utterly foolish. Money is not the solution to every problem. Money can be a tool. It can help in some ways. It can solve some problems, but there are some problems that money cannot solve. There are some things that you just cannot buy your way out of. And yes, there are lots of people that can be bought, but not everybody can be bought. Some people have a price, but thankfully, by the grace of God, there are some people because they have integrity and they fear God more than they fear man who it doesn't matter how much money you give them, you're not going to buy them over with money. And the one person that's certainly true with is God. You're never going to bribe God. You're never going to pay off God if you would. And so he says here, riches do not profit in the day of wrath. The idea is when calamity is coming. When calamity is coming, riches will not profit. So in a day of a catastrophe, when judgment is coming, you can't pay off everybody, the writer is saying. It's foolish to think that money can be your savior because in some of those situations when a catastrophe is coming upon you, in that moment, it does not matter how much money you have, who you pay off, what kind of lawyers you can buy, how many judges you can bribe. At the end of the day, in a catastrophe, sometimes there's still just never enough money to get yourself out of the problem you got yourself in. And so he says, when a catastrophe comes, sometimes money is completely worthless. However, in contrast to that, doing what is right and being willing to always do what's right, even in the midst maybe of a catastrophe, that really is the thing that is the greatest insurance of being able to escape impending doom. Because he says, in contrast, righteousness, but righteousness delivers from death. So though money can't solve any problem, God says, do you want the greatest insurance to be able to try and escape impending doom, the best way to avoid not being destroyed? God says, first and foremost, just do what's right from the beginning. Just do what is right from the beginning. Don't think you can do what's wrong and then pay people off later on. Don't think just because you have excess wealth, you can misbehave and then you can bail yourself out later by paying somebody off. God says, that doesn't always work. It's foolish to think like that. Because eventually you will find you can't pay the price. And so God says the better thing to do is just do what's right. Continue to always do what's right before God and man. And that will A, keep you out of problems. 
And then even when you get into problems, the best thing to do, just do what's right. Just submit to the situation, do the right thing, and many times you can deliver yourself. You may go through some hurt, but you can deliver yourself from being destroyed by just simply doing what is right. And look, as we look at verse 4 there, as you know, any verse, perhaps in some ways, we can try and take from the Old Testament, can we not certainly see truths regarding the gospel message of Jesus Christ right there in verse 4? That riches will not profit in the day of wrath. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? He says, for what will a man give in exchange for his soul. The, 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 the cost, the value of a human soul is so costly, there is no payoff with God. There is coming a day where every person, because of their own sin, has to give account to the wrath of God upon their own life for their own sin and guilt. And you can't bribe God. You can't just throw enough money in an offering pot in a church and think, oh, well, if I do that, I appease my conscience. And, and so therefore, I made a big donation. So God's gonna, it's going to tip God's scale. Well, God has honest scales in heaven. And that's not going to work. And, and you're never going to pay off God or bribe God by doing something. You can do all. But I do so many good works. I do a wealth of good works. And God says, your good works don't add up. If there was something that we could do, the Bible says in the New Testament that if righteousness could be obtained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. It was in vain. There is no contribution financially, works-related, religious activity that we can make that could pay off the debt of our human soul. But aren't you glad that Jesus took care of that debt? That Jesus paid the price, and therefore, verse 4, he says, but righteousness delivers from death. That is not our righteousness, but what? The righteousness of God that comes to us through receiving Jesus Christ. He gives us his righteousness. And as a result of receiving his righteousness, we are delivered from wrath and we are delivered from death, eternal death through Jesus Christ because of what he has done for us. What a beautiful picture there, even of the gospel message. Verse five, he says, the righteousness of the blameless, that is the one without guilt of wrongdoing, will direct his way right. But the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. Verse 6, he then adds into that, the righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the unfaithful will be caught by his lust or their lust. So notice God's wisdom, verses 5 and 6 here, tell us that recognizing this idea, and we see it repeated throughout this chapter even, that sowing and reaping is a reality that is constant in the way that we live. And oh, the wisdom that we have when we accept and, and live by the reality that sowing and reaping, as much as it's a law in nature, it is a law of life. And that what we sow, the Bible says, don't be deceived, we're going to reap in kind. And that works both in a good sense and in a bad sense. So many times we just hear that and we think of it in a negative sense. Oh, if I sow bad seeds, then I'm going to get bad and corrupt fruit. Well, that's true. But the Bible also says that if we sow good seeds and righteous seeds, then good fruit comes into our life as well. It works both ways. The important thing is to realize that the principle has been established by God so it's wise to recognize that sowing and reaping is a reality that transpires, and it's foolish to ignore that principle. 
in bad behavior by thinking, oh, I can behave badly or make bad choices or make poor decisions and no bad fruit will come. No, no, I'll get an escape plan on this one. God will give me a pass on that. There won't be consequences. Again, I'm going I'm to sow to my sinful flesh and then I'm going to pray for crop failure and it'll work. I know it. I'm just going to pray for crop failure. And, and then the harvest comes and we realize that didn't work. Now, look, in the same way, it's foolish also to ignore that principle to think it's worthless to do good. Because God says, don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap a harvest if you don't lose heart, if you don't give up. You just keep doing what's good, you keep doing what's good. And no good, good fruit, good, good benefits will come. And that's what verses 5 and 6 are emphasizing here. That the righteousness, the righteous life of the blameless person, he says, verse 5, the one who's living without guilt, doing what's right, he says, the wonderful thing is they will find if they keep making right choices that that will bring benefit into their life. It will notice it will direct his way right. In other words, you keep doing what's right, God will keep giving you more clarity what's the next right thing to do. That's part of the good fruit of doing the right thing. You do the right thing, God shows you the next right thing to do. It's called progressive revelation. You obey God in one thing, then God shows you the next right thing to do. And it's a wonderful benefit of making the right decisions and doing the right thing. And God leads us step by step, but, but it's doing the right first thing. You do the, this step, and then God gives you the next step. And he says, that's the benefit of doing what's right. You'll reap that direction from the Lord. As well as, he says, verse 6, it will deliver you as well. It'll keep you out of trouble. It'll get you out of jams because you just do the right thing and you keep yourself from being ensnared. Where the contrast, he says, the person who lives wickedly, notice he says, verse 5, as they live wickedly, they will fall by their own wickedness. In other words, eventually, there, there are consequences of their bad decisions, their sinful behaviors. Eventually, it just starts accumulating, and they can brush it under the rug, brush it under the rug, brush it under the rug, but what happens eventually? You just eventually trip over the lump, and you fall. You can, we can try and brush things. I'm getting away with it. I got away with it, got away with it, 10 months, 10 years, 15 years, eventually you're falling on your face. It's just the way God's wired things. Not because he enjoys watching us fall on our faces, but God would rather me fall on my face than fall over a cliff. And so therefore, God will eventually let us fall and stumble from time to time. And that's why he says as well, verse six, that the unfaithful, notice, will be caught by their own lust. That's an act of God's love, that when a person does what is wrong and sows to their, their flesh, one of the consequences of sinful actions is eventually it catches up, and it doesn't only cause us to fall, it, it actually becomes the thing that causes us to get exposed, and we get caught so that we can then hopefully deal with it and, and get ourselves delivered and back onto a right path. Verse 7, he says, and when a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish. It will go away forever, and the hope of the unjust perishes. So it seems that the idea in verse 7 here is those who do wrong things, they may succeed and prosper for a season in their pursuits. And we all know that. You, know, you can be successful for a time doing what's wrong. It can even seem like you're prospering. Remember the psalmist in Psalm 73 struggled with that. Why does the wicked seem like that they're flourishing, Lord? And it was bothering him. He was vexed in his heart. Here I am trying to do what's right, and I'm watching other people do what's wrong, and they're actually seeming like they're, they're, they're getting some success, and they're prospering. And for a season, 
A person can do what's wrong and, and, and succeed in those pursuits, but evil pursuits are always self-destructive paths ultimately. It's almost as if it's hardwired into doing what's wrong. God is hardwired into that, that the end destination of doing what's wrong is self-destruction. And this is what he's saying here in verse 7, it seems. Evil pursuits always lead to self-destructive paths. In time, it always leads to ruin and failure and loss ultimately. So that's why wisdom realizes there's nothing to be gained in wrongdoing. Because he says, eventually the wicked dies off and his hopes and his pursuits and his expectations, they never succeed ultimately. Eventually, God brings it to failure. Eventually, there's just loss. So the wise person realizes there's never anything to be gained in wrongdoing. There's only everything to be lost in wrongdoing. And it's wise to remember that. Verse 8, he says, the righteous is delivered from trouble, and instead, it comes to the wicked. So notice, sometimes in a sinful world, again, it appears as well that doing good isn't working out, right? Not only does it appear like some people doing wrong are getting away with it and succeeding, but sometimes there's that discouragement of, man, I'm doing what's good. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm, you know, in fact, it seems like that as I try and do the right thing, I'm having more problems, and I'm getting persecuted, and, I, and I'm having challenges, and I, you know, because I wouldn't lie, he got the promotion, or, or because, you know, I won't cheat, you know, I, I'm struggling to get ahead. And, and, and sometimes it feels like doing the right thing, that it's actually hindering us in some way. And, and so we wrestle with that. And it appears in some way like it's not working out and that wicked people are getting ahead. Yet here's the thing he's saying in verse 8 here, the wise person realizes that at any given moment, God can turn the tables. And sometimes God is a way of doing that. He says here in verse 8 to us, the righteous ends up being delivered from their trouble. They may have trouble for time, but God has a way to intervene and deliver the righteous out of trouble. And he says that very same trouble that the righteous was dealing with, it comes around and it lands upon the wicked person instead as their judgment and their discipline is the consequence for their wrongdoing. And look, let me encourage you. God has a way to turn the table in situations. God can intervene. God can reverse things at any given moment in his righteous judgment. And wise people, therefore, keep doing what's right, no matter what you're seeing or what's going on. Just keep doing right, no matter how it looks, and let God sort things out in time. And as you read through the Old Testament, you see occasions of that, right? With Haman and, and Mordecai. And, and ultimately, what did God do? You know, Haman was trying to make those gallows to hang out Mordecai to, to kill him. And ultimately, what God just reversed it, and he ended up hanging on his own gallows. And God has ways of doing that. God has ways of, again, remember, God measures time morally. And, and, and people aren't getting away with things. They're just running out of time. And at any given moment, God can just step in and reverse things. Just keep doing what's right. Don't intervene. Don't just let God deal with things in time. And the wonderful thing is the wise person realizes, I'm just going to keep doing the right thing. That's God's business. And God can turn the tables at any time he wants to. And just let God work on your behalf to do that. Verse 9, he says, And the hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. So the hypocrite is the person who's a fake individual. They're liars. They're deceivers. And here the principle in verse 9 is those who are liars and deceivers can at times use their words to really harm and destroy people. And we've seen that. Perhaps some of us have experienced that. 
But he says, if someone is innocent and credible in time, knowledge will ultimately come to the surface. He says, through knowledge, the righteous will be, the idea is eventually delivered. So the, the person who's a liar or a deceiver, the hypocrite, they may use their words in very destructive ways. And they may slander someone or, or speak about someone in a way or, or convey things to try and destroy someone's character. But look, he says, but through knowledge, through knowing the truth, the righteous will end up being delivered. In other words, it is important to realize that if there is indeed innocence and credibility in time, knowledge of the truth about a person will always surface. And somebody may try and discredit somebody and muddy somebody and say stuff about them, and they may do that to you. And look, in that situation, you don't chase your reputation. You don't run around and get defensive and chase your reputation. The best thing to do is you just let your life speak for itself. And eventually, the knowledge of what is true about you will be the very thing, he says in verse 9, that will deliver you from the lies that were being conveyed about you or the wrong things that were thought towards you. That is how you reverse people's perspective. So it's foolish to try and defend ourselves against liars. Wisdom prompts us, just let your character defend your reputation. Just let your character defend your reputation. Let it speak for itself, and in time, people will see what is true, and God will give them a knowledge of what is true about you, and it will speak and deliver you out from any shadowy thing someone has put upon you that was unfair or unjust. He says, verse 10, and when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, when they are gone, then there is jubilation, celebration. Thank goodness, ding dong, the, the witch is dead. Eventually, goodbye, hallelujah. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. So it seems the principle here in verse 10 and 11 is how righteous people being allowed to live in right ways and provide righteous paths and righteous solutions, he says here in our verses, are actually very beneficial for society. He's going to say in Proverbs chapter 14 that, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And here this idea of the city, the society being emphasized here in verses 10 and 11, the city rejoicing, the upright causing the city to be exalted. He's saying when righteous people are allowed to live in right ways, it's very beneficial for communities, God's saying, because it causes people to live morally and to live healthy, and it, it brings about a community that can flourish because morality is always what's best because it's God's design for the way people live, for the way that families function, for people embracing their biological sex and living according to that design and that gender and not telling people you can figure it out as you go. God says, no, when righteous and right people are leading the way with truth and right ways and promoting right ways, God says that is what causes cities, communities to celebrate, to flourish, and to be exalted. And God says, in contrast to that, when wicked people are doing wicked things, they just make things miserable for everybody because it just ruins the culture in such a way where people, it says, actually, when somebody wicked dies, they get together and they celebrate. Finally, we've been delivered from the wicked king. 
Finally, this person who's been polluting society with all their immoral ideas or their filthy you know, concepts and the things they're promoting or indoctrinating our children, finally, their, their wicked, perverse, sick ideas are, are gone. And so I think this is just a very important thing to remember that wisdom keeps us remembering and understanding that morality is good for society. And don't let people convince you otherwise because that's the aggressive push today to get us to believe that there's something wrong with us and that those of us who are conservative, Bible-believing, moral believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who believe according to the standards of the Word of God and traditional moral values that we're the problem and that we're ruining society and that we're bigots and homophobes and, 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 and that we're the ones bringing things da- downhill. The exact opposite is true. We're the ones that build a foundation, and we're the ones trying to uphold what's decent and moral and healthy and best for individuals and marriages and families and society, and and it is those who are promoting wickedness and filthy and immoral things. They're the ones that are tearing the house down and causing problems and havoc to happen. Look, it matters in how culture operates, so remember that your presence is essential. And your morality is an important, beneficial influence in the culture. Don't be ashamed of your morality. Live according to your morality. Live according to your convictions. Be salt and light in the culture. And of course, when we're finding ourselves with the privilege to exercise our vote, don't let yourself fall into that pattern too. Oh, it doesn't matter. Just the more there are moral people, I'm not even saying Christian, moral people, just moral people. I don't have to agree with everything. But to some degree, are you moral? <laughs> Just moral people in power makes things much better for the exaltation and success of a society. And so this is very important for us to remember the wisdom of this and not fall prey to the foolish ideas of those around us trying to speak louder and convince us of error. Verse 12, he says, he who is devoid of wisdom or lacking wisdom despises his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace. So he says, verse 12 here, when someone despises someone, what do they do? If they despise their neighbor, the idea is that, you know, they're always complaining, always critical of their neighbor and those around them. And he says, when somebody is always despising others, complaining about others, always hypercritical of everything about everybody around them, their neighbors and everyone in their presence, he says, that person just shows they lack wisdom. And the reason they lack wisdom is because they are too hyper-fixated on petty issues rather than more major things. And, and their hyper-fixation on petty differences and petty issues that makes them nitpick and despise this person because they act that way or, or criticize this person because they do things this way. He says such a person just shows that they actually are lacking wisdom. In contrast, he says, the man of understanding, look what he says, holds their peace. In other words, you just realize part of having an understanding heart is there are way bigger things than petty issues that I dislike about someone else because there are petty issues people don't like about me or don't like about you too. But he says a man of understanding who understands life is about much bigger things, they learn to just hold their peace. In other words, I may think that, but I don't always have to say what I'm thinking. I don't always have to give my opinion. I don't always have to say my criticism out loud. I don't always have to make my comment as a response to something. 
You know, I found myself just of late recently even trying to, you know, put that into application, even this very day. You know, two of the texts that came across to me today, I wanted to respond in a certain way. But I opted to hold my peace and keep it to a phrase. Wanted to say about six, and it, the six were in my head. They almost came out of my thumb. But I thought, mm, just going to hold my peace on that. Just, just, just going to say something simple there. <laughs> just, just not worth it. I understand there's bigger things, and it, you know, sometimes it's just not worth having to say some of the things that we say. Just to let them be. Verse 13, he says, And a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. So the talebearer is the person who we might say is a, a gossip or the person who doesn't know how to hold a, a, a confidence to keep a secret. So it's foolish, the Bible says, to fall prey to freely sharing private information things that maybe we've been informed of or maybe that were shared with us because he says this always ends up causing hurt. It's detrimental, right? It always causes detrimental effects to relationships when we don't keep a confidence of something maybe somebody shared with us in personal one-on-one -on -one communication. Maybe it's a sensitive subject or situation and sometimes we just a little too freely. We just talk about things and we don't respect the confidence of what's been shared with us and he says that's always something that causes problems revealing secrets a little too freely he says but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter so notice it's wise god is saying to become a safe reliable person to be a safe reliable person who can keep matters to yourself that some things may be shared with you as a listening ear in a conversation and that you learn sometimes it's best to respect someone's confidence and, and to just conceal the matter and just to keep it between you and God. Some matters are meant to be concealed from public knowledge and there is no value in sharing them with others. There's no need to pass along that information, even as a prayer request. And that's where we can hear sometimes, it's, oh, I, I want, can I share this with you? so that you can pray for them. And sometimes in doing that, for, for trying to get one more prayer lifted to heaven, we just ruined a relationship forever with a person because we didn't respect something they shared with us in privacy and confidence, and we wound and, and cause heartache. So we have to use wisdom to exercise self-control, to be faithful, to honor people. When they trust you, that, that's huge. And so he says the, the, the wise person, the, the person is the one who's able to have a faithful spirit and conceal a matter. Verse 14, he gives another great principle of wisdom. Where there is no counsel, he says, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Great, great proverb, memorize, live it out. You can't get more practical common sense wisdom than right there in making everyday decisions. Foolish people, the Bible's saying, foolish people avoid and disregard seeking input. So they suffer, and at times they make bad choices and suffer for them simply because they never took the time to seek a little input, or they never felt humble enough that they needed a little input, or there might be value. And you know, let me just, I don't know, let me see what another, I don't know everything about everything, so let me, or maybe this is a big decision, so maybe I ought to just kind of check with one or two other people first and hear some different angles and, you know, gather some other input. Wise people, he's saying here, take advantage 
of the protection, and that's the idea here, the protection that comes from hearing other people's advice on matters, hearing other people's insights or input. And the reality is this, folks, we all have blind spots, right? Everybody does. We all have blind spots and for different reasons. Sometimes it's our temperament. Sometimes it's just our perspective on certain things that cause us to have blind spots. Sometimes we're so emotionally engaged in a situation that seeking someone who's not as emotionally attached, that's just objective, that can speak some ideas or thoughts into a given situation, and that can hinder our view on matters. So he says it's very wise and helpful to ensure safely navigating decisions by recognizing that when there's no counsel, people tend to fall and make mistakes. But he says, in contrast, wisdom realizes in the multitude of counselors, now they need to be good counselors, godly counselors, people that you trust, that you respect, that are gonna give you wise counsel and are impartial and care about your best, in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. That's how you stay safe. That's how you protect yourself from making mistakes often in life. The safest decisions are well-informed decisions, God's telling us. Wisdom recognizes that. Verse 15, he who is surety for a stranger will suffer, but he who hates being surety is secure. This is kind of the same idea we saw back in chapter 6 extensively there, warning against the risk involved with guaranteeing someone else's debt or financial commitment becoming surety for someone else's financial obligation. And the Bible just says, look, that's, that's really risky. Be careful there. Be careful. Unless you've got the money and you have no problem releasing it, it's, a lot of times God's just saying, it's just that's a very risky road to go down, becoming surety for someone else's financial responsibilities. Verse 16, he says, And a gracious woman retains honor or dignity, but ruthless men retain Riches. So it seems the principle here is that what a person seeks to keep, the idea of retain or hold on to, that what somebody seeks to retain is many a times a revelation of their heart and what really matters to them. Because he says, the woman who retains honor does so. She cares about dignity and honor because she has a gracious and a kind spirit. And because she has a gracious and a kind spirit, she's interested in doing what's honorable above all else. Now, in contrast, he says the cruel man, the ruthless man, is willing to do anything to anyone because all they want to retain is money, 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 money. <laughs> and so because they want to retain money, they'll just bulldoze and destroy and do ruthless and cruel things to anyone because that's revealing where their heart is at. Verse 17, he says, and the merciful man does good to his own soul, but he who is a cruel troubles his own flesh. So notice here's this sowing and reaping concept again here. The way that we treat other people, often how we relate to others, becomes the seedbed for what we end up then reaping back into our own lives. You know, we make this statement, whatever goes around, comes around, right? And this is kind of the idea, and the New Testament even teaches that, you know, sow mercy. If you're merciful, You'll reap mercy back into your life. And if you're cruel and you're always cruel to people and always judgmental, guess what? When the time comes and you fail, guess what's coming back around your way? You're the biggest criticizer. Now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. And then you're going to find it. So this is the idea here. Verse 17, 
wisdom makes us realize the merciful man, he's doing good for his own soul. Give away lots of mercy because someday you're going to need to, in a sense, receive back what you invest. So he says you get a good return on investment. Sow out lots of mercy, and eventually when you need to withdraw some mercy, it'll come back, where in contrast, he says, if you're someone who's cruel, you're just going to trouble your own life down the road. Verse 18, the wicked man does deceptive work, but he who, again, notice, here's this idea, sows righteousness will have a sure reward. So the same concept of sowing and reaping. If you're wicked, you're going to sow it by wicked works and working in wicked ways, which is going to cause problems. But he says, if you're someone who's sowing seeds of righteousness, God's going to reward that. Keep doing what's right, he says, and there's a sure reward if you keep doing the right thing. As righteousness leads to life, verse 19, so he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. And those who have a perverse heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their ways are his delight. So again, here's this idea again here of depending upon how we behave, you know, that, that the condition of our heart and the way that we live does greatly matter to the Lord. And this is what he's emphasizing here in our verses, that the perverse heart, the one who does what's wrong by pursuing evil, he says, that, that's an abomination to the Lord. In other words, God takes it serious, not just what we're doing, but even the condition of our hearts. And that it does matter to the Lord, the condition of our heart. And again, kind of a strong concept again here to think that we can discuss the Lord. I don't want to discuss the Lord. I mean, that just in and of itself is kind of sobering and scary to me. What I do want to do is the opposite here of our verses is I want to be someone who's bringing pleasure to the Lord by keeping my life on track with doing things, staying free of error. He talks about living blameless. The idea is not doing something that you're guilty of, but living free of error so that I might bring delight to God. Verse 21, he says, though they join forces, the wicked will not go unpunished but the posterity of the righteous will be delivered. Now, verse 21, the idea, though they join forces coming together like a team collectively, the wicked will still not go unpunished. You know, I think the principle and wisdom God's giving to us here is to kind of give this implication that people doing what's wrong may sometimes together come together and join forces, and somehow they think if we can just get more people on our team doing what's wrong, that eventually that implies that what we're doing is acceptable and right. And God's saying here, nothing is further from the truth from heaven's perspective when the king is on the throne. God says here, I don't care if the wicked come together with the biggest force and the biggest team on earth. If what they're doing is wicked, it don't matter how many people are doing what's wrong, it's still not right. It's still wrong, God says. And look, this is very important because look what's happening in our culture and particularly those who are the loudest voices are those who are simply trying to just, well, there's a lot of us doing this now. Look how big our community is now. This is right now. I don't care how big your team is. It's still wrong. And God's saying here, don't fall prey to that. And we need to educate our children in the same way. We need to help our children to understand, look, just because lots of people are doing something doesn't mean it's right. Just because lots of people do a wrong thing doesn't make it now become right and justified. And so God wants us to understand the wisdom of that very principle. 
Now, verse 22, I know you've been hanging on this one all night. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman, he says, who lacks discretion. Now, the picture here, and keep in mind for a Jew, too, the, the swine or the pig was an unclean animal. So he's saying here, if you have a pig, you know, the, the picture of a disgusting, filthy animal, and he says, you have a pig, and you have a gold ring in the pig's nose, if somehow by putting the gold ring in the pig's nose, all of a sudden that now beautifies it or whatever, or makes it acceptable, the picture here is something that's very out of place. You're not going to take a valuable golden ring and stick it in a filthy pig's snout, he says, that gold ring is going to be very out of place. It's going to be very awkward. It's going to be something really that's wasted and of no value. And he says, so, in contrast, is a lovely, beautiful woman who lacks discretion. The idea here is a lovely woman, God's saying, who exercises no discretion or modesty in how she dresses or represents herself, God says, but overly flaunts herself, God says, in my estimation, that's sadly something that's no longer attractive. It's incredibly awkward and out of place. It's something that's, that's an absolute waste. It's taking beauty and exploiting it in a disgusting way, God says. And God says there's nothing to be beautiful of that. And any more than putting lipstick on a pig makes the pig attractive. God says a, a lovely woman who flaunts herself in inappropriate, disrespectful ways, with no discretion or modesty, God says, that's very awkward, and that's no longer attractive at all. In fact, it's become incredibly out of place and something completely inappropriate. Verse 23 says, the desire of the righteous is only good. So again, if our heart is wanting to do what's right, then notice God will give us desires that are good. Keep that in mind. You want to do what's right? God will give you desires that are good. But the expectation of the wicked, if your heart's not right, is going to be wrath, self-destructive things. Verse 24, he speaks of generosity. There's one who scatters yet increases more, and there's one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. And the generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. So here he speaks of the wisdom of those who are willing to live generously. Those who understand the value of being a giving, generous, helpful person. Those who live generously and share, giving to bless and help others as they can. He says they discover they don't actually lose. They actually get ahead. They actually gain. Because God rewards and God blesses and restores as a reward those who are willing to live unselfishly. Those who are willing to live generously. He says there's one that scatters, they're giving away, they're being generous in different ways, whether it's with their resources or their time or energy or talents or whatever it may be, scattering good seed. Yet, he says, they actually increase more. Wait a minute, that, that sounds paradoxical. How could that be true? Because God's giving back. Because God blesses generosity and, and willingness to share. And he says, then there's one who withholds more than is right. That is, they're trying to hang on to things. And they could be more giving, they could be more generous, they could be more helpful, and again, that could be in whatever capacity. Maybe it's being more generous financially. Maybe it's being more generous with their time. Maybe it's being more giving and sacrificial to serve and to do things and to help, and yet they're trying in self-preservation to, to withhold and hold back. And he says, that actually doesn't result in anything, but he says it leads to actually more lack because you're living in contradiction to the way of God. God so loved the world that he what? Gave, right? That's the nature of the love of God. 
because by nature we're selfish and self-consumed, and when God's love comes into our heart, it drives the selfishness out, and it should make us to be want to be more giving people in all of our ways. And God honors that. So he says here, the generous person finds they don't lack. They actually increase and get ahead, where the person who's withholding more than they should, holding back, whether because of unbelief, oh, if I give away, how am I going to make it? Oh, if I do this, how, I'll never, be, if, if I give up my time, how will I ever get this done? I, I want to help, I want, but oh, I just have too much to do. I, I don't have enough time to serve. Or I don't have, and, and God says, and then you find you're in poverty. And it may not be financially, but you're empty. You're empty because you have no outlet, because you never give. And God says here in verse 25, the generous giving soul will be made rich. God enriches such a life, and he who waters will also be watered himself. So the idea there is as we give out, as we seek to refresh others and bless others and serve others, so whether it's in financial giving and being generous or whether, again, it's the giving of our possessions or, or exercising the giving of energy and time, whether it's looking for ways to help and to serve people and bless and care for people, God says here, the one who is of a giving nature will be enriched and he who waters other people will be watered themselves. The idea is this is as you and I pour out and pour out and pour out and pour out, God always pours back into us. He just does it. It's just the principle of the way God works. God takes good care of his servants. He's a really great employer. And when we serve him and we give in the different ways he asks us to, God always pours back into our lives and this is just a wisdom principle of faith that people have to learn at some point by faith to live by. To recognize when you hold back and you don't give and you don't serve and you're not generous, here's how you're going to end up. Dry and empty. You do the opposite. You give of yourself and give away of yourself and you're going to find, man, I, I, I'm getting blessed, man. <laughs> how am I getting blessed? And you're going to find God's going to refresh you and pour back into your life in wonderful ways. Look at verse 26. We'll conclude with this. It kind of attaches to the same principle. He says, the people will curse him who withholds grain. Or nowadays, maybe they're withholding gas soon. Who knows, right? The people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells us. So again, the same picture here. The person who in self-preservation trying to, oh, I don't know, there's a famine coming on the land. You remember, those of you who remember Y2K? Oh, Y2K. Store up, get your guns. Load up your grain, get all your food. Get your shotgun. Because good Christians, when the neighbors come for food, are going to shoot them. Because my family's got to survive. That's how I love my enemies. I'm going to shoot everybody who comes after my grain. <laughs> and you know, when we fall into the, we try and hold back and hoard, or we try and capitalize, oh, there's a minimal amount of grain, you know, so then, like business people, there's a minimum amount of gas, so let's price gouge. There's a minimum amount of grain, let's price gouge. And God says, when a person does that, and they, may, they may selfishly enrich themselves, but they're going to ruin their reputation. People are going to hate them. So you can enrich yourself and self-preserve, but you're going to cause people to hate you. But he says, you know how you want to have a blessed life? He says, when you're willing to freely let go. You have the capacity to sell. You have merchandise. You sell it at a fair price. You give it away. The idea is that you're not living in self-preservation. 
you're thinking about the needs of others and you have a communal mindset and you're saying, hey, I don't want to hoard, I want to share. And God says that's the way to have a blessed life and to be someone people bless. Let's stand, let's pray together.